Get ready for the very latest organizational and human development research briefing from the Oxford Review. The number one source of analysis, research, and thinking to help you become the most impressively well-informed and knowledgeable professional around so that you can lead any organization to success in any situation. You are listening to the Organizational Success Academy podcast from the Oxford Review with your host, the Editor-in-Chief, David Wilkinson. Hi, and welcome back. Today, I'm talking with the authors of the book, Framers, Human Advantage in an Age of Technology and Turmoil, Kenneth Cookier, Victor Mayer Schoenenberger, and Francis de Vericourt. Kenneth Cookie is the Deputy Executive Editor of The Economist in London and the host of its weekly tech podcast, Babbage. He's also co-author of the award-winning book, Big Data, with Victor Mayer Schoenenberger, who we'll be talking to in a second, that is a New York Times bestseller translated to over 20 languages. He's also been a research fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and he's a board director at Chatham House, a fellow of Oxford Side Business School, and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Victor Mayer Schoenberger is Professor of Internet Governance and Regulation at the Oxford Internet Institute, which is actually just down the road from where I am at the moment, um, here at the Oxford University. He's a faculty affiliate of the Belfer Centre of Science and International Affairs at Harvard University. In addition to Framers, Victor's published eight books, including the international bestseller, Big Data with Kenneth and the award-winning Delete the Virtue of Forgetting in a Digital Age. Victor's also the author of over a hundred articles and book chapters on the information. Francis de Vericourt is Professor of Management Science and the Director of the Centre for Decisions, Models and Data, DMD Centre, at ESMT in Berlin. He's also the first holder of the President's Chair there. Now, Francis has lived and worked in France, USA, Germany and Singapore, and he was the first Associate Dean of Research at ESMT and held faculty positions at Duke University in INSEAD, where he's also the Professor in Sustainable Development. He was a postdoctoral researcher at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and received a Master's of Science degree in Applied Mathematics and Computer Science at Grenoble Institute of Technology, as well as a PhD from the University Paris in France. Welcome. Nice to have you all here. Happy to be here. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Can we just start by telling us how you came together to write the book and what kind of led up to it? You know, we had this phenomenal success, Ken and I, with big data, and we wrote big data with the understanding that gathering more data helps us understand the world, gives us a, a better perspective on the world. And that's true. But as we saw the data age emerge, it we realized that something was missing, uh, that people, even with exactly the same data, came to different conclusions, chose different paths forward. And so we said, it can't just be the data. There needs to be something else. And whatever, you know, people do when they don't know what they're doing is they go and ask an expert. So we went to Francis and said, Francis, tell us what's going on. And Francis says, oh, I can tell you it's about models. And that started us on this path and a three-year writing project that culminated in Framers. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Interesting. So can you just explain what you mean by framing? What is a frame and why frames are so fundamental to just about everything we do as humans, actually? 
Well, I can jump in if you want. I mean, frames are mental models. They are representations about how part of the world work and why they are. I mean, framing is the application of those frames to the challenge situations, problems we are facing. And you can, as Victor alluded to, you can, for the same problems, same decisions, same challenges, leverage different representations that will elicit different set of decisions, alternatives that you may play with and engage with. But why fundamentally I think they are so important is because this is really what enables us to go beyond the present, if you want, beyond the information you have right now or beyond the past and project yourself far away, extrapolate far away from your current situations and still be right. And if you, I'm, I'm sure we are going to talk about that a bit later, but if you look at, for instance, machines, machines in contrast are using a lot of data that are from the past and it can be extremely powerful, but you will be stuck in a certain way of thinking about how the world process, which is past data and then project yourself into the future. Humans, thanks to their representations, can go well beyond that. And with a couple of data points, imagine and be still be correct what can happen. So that's why I think they are very, very, very important. So the, the kind of models that we work for in order to give us a perspective on what's happening but also therefore to be able to project into the future of what's likely to happen, what's likely to come up and imagine things and see things that don't actually exist at the moment. That's correct. And I would add, it's not only in the future, it's also in the present, but something that is impossible to observe, or it's also to observe alternative realities that you will not be able to observe directly because they are alternative realities, but still imagining these alternative realities help us understand the world in the present. So it's anything that you cannot directly measure. Yeah. And I would actually add probably our perceptions of the past as well, fundamentally altered by the frames that we have and how we perceive the past and our reaction to it. Yes, correct. Yeah. Excellent. So in the book, you talk about how frames and models highlight certain things and diminish or ignore other factors that other frames might in fact highlight. And you give a really up-to-date and relevant example about the, the different frames that for example, vaxxers and anti-vaxxers have the health frame and the freedom frame. Could you just explain this? Yeah. It's also what's interesting in this dimension is that the environment that we're in has changed, right? Because of what we know about COVID in a certain period of time, say in January, February, March of 2020, looks very different than when we're recording this podcast, you know, in the beginning of January of 2022. So in America, where you've seen this crystallize the most, you're really seeing the cleavage among party affiliation and among identity and the political polarization is in the area of science and the recognition of whether you should actually wear a mask and where you should get the vaccine. And those people who have the frame of COVID being like the flu in which you just sort of power through it, but it's something that it's that almost very rarely would actually harm you in any significant way, really believe that it was unfair to be told by a central authority to have to wear a mask. But interestingly enough, you have people who have the same amount of information, same data, same press conference with Dr. Fauci, who hear this and say, well, if a mask is effective and I don't have to get COVID at all, why wouldn't I just wear a mask? That's just science. And it just feels like you're adhering to some sort of probity of how reasonability should work. And it's interesting because you can actually take this one domain of whether to wear a mask or whether to get vaccinated, and it colors people's outlook on life far more prescriptively and predictively than so many other features of 
who they are and what they Yes, I like this idea that the frame that we take on or the frame that we have changes what is reasonable, what we consider to be reasonable, and therefore also changes what we consider not to be reasonable. And how those disagreements, as you quite rightly say, you know, you, you see that the political polarization and what the frames are that underpin that level of polarization. And I suppose th there's a question here about whether frames become tighter in opposition. What I mean by that is that people become more backed into a corner, I suppose, is what I'm saying, if there's some opposition to or some challenge to that frame. Would I be right in saying that? There is evidence that, and we talk about this in the book, in a rarefied area, that those people who have an overly tight frame, don't have the mental agility and the mental flexibility to see things from the other side, to play with their frames and to sort of bend the constraints and, and examine mentally the alternatives and to find a frame that fits better. And sadly, the example that we use is of terrorists who adhere to a frame, but their frame is extraordinarily rigid and they actually feel that there's some great sort of cosmological negativity and not injustice, but some evil for those people who have this flexibility that they don't have, who can see things on the margin, who see gray rather than black and white. And they vaunt the tightness of their frame, but of course their frame is a hand. And it, it, it's interesting, especially so that it's an area that I've, I've worked in terms of extremism and, and terrorism, is how people get nudged into that position and slowly tightening that frame. So the frame becomes less and less flexible as the ascension into it deepens, I suppose. And, and David, th that is something that we highlight in the book over and over again, that framing is not just a fact of life, that, but it is a tool that we can use that has flexibility and adaptability built into it. And the problem that these extremists or terrorists have is that they see framing as a fact of life. They can't escape it. They are sort of trapped into it. While we see it as an empowerment tool, we see it as a tool that helps us improve our decision-making if we understand that framing isn't the box that we are locked in, but actually helps us generate counterfactuals, generate alternative realities that equate with better decision options than we have currently available. So to us, framing is a tool to get better and to shape the world for the terrorists. It's a box that they are trapped in. Yes, and becomes more serious and, and deeper as they go along. And and this idea of exploring different frames. And I, I just wonder whether there's any research about whether doing that actually increases an individual's cognitive flexibility. Yes, I mean, there, there are some research and, and to build on what Victor and Ken said, just to go back real quick on the terrorism, mm. a good framer has the ability to ask what if questions. What if, you know, the world will be different or some constraint on my frames where mitigate or relax and all that. Terrorists do not ask what if questions as much. And so there is a, a strong link between this frame, frame fluidity and, you know, poor decision making. Now, to go back to your questions, there is fascinating research that, for instance, take U.S. citizens who were born and raised outside 
America. And then by design, basically, it's, it's a, you know, it's a natural experiment. We're exposed to different culture that is different representations about how the world works, how society works. And then went back to America. And the research showed that typically those individuals perform better on their job, especially if this is a job that requires decision-making and innovations, than their counterpart who were born in the U.S. And so they have better positions, higher salaries. There's even research that showed that if you raise as a bilingual kid, you have a more flexible a mindset and you have a better adaptability. So yes, there is research that shows that flexibility, agility, disability, and let us be clear, it's not only about changing perspective, changing frame, it's also disability within a mental model to ask these what-if questions. That's extremely powerful in itself. This is something that if a terrorist could only, you know, what if my friend were wrong, ask that very question. So it's flexible muscle to ask what-if questions. This is also part of the flexibility, agility we ask is very much present in those multicultural individuals. And in fact, I think there's a, so Edward de Bono was talking about right and wrong and this idea of asking question about what if I'm, and that can lead us into starting to explore other frames as well. Or within your own frames. I mean, it's like, it's challenging some of the, any frame you're using make causal claim about how the world works. There's always a causal relationship that you leverage. When you run a counterfactual, you do not run it in a vacuum. This counterfactual is controlled by different constraints and also some explanations about how the world works. And you can ask what if questions about those explanations. You can start there to say, well, what if I change a little bit explanations and then how the world would look like, such as global warming? You know, what if we do not produce these CO2 emissions, how the world would like? And then by relaxing that, I mean, that production of CO2, we imagine a world where there's no global warming. And therefore we know there's a link between CO2 and global warming. So basically asking those what if questions within the frame is in itself extremely powerful. It also seems that this ability to be able to both relax the rigidity of a frame and also skip between frames is, it kind of underpins creativity and innovation as well. Yeah, that, that's correct. I mean, we talk in the book about thinking outside the box. We basically trash this metaphor. We enjoy doing that. It was a lot of fun. Why? Because I, and still to this day, you hear some consultants, some authors celebrating thinking outside the box, explaining you all the type of method you can apply to think outside the box. And there's 30 years of research. It's not necessarily ours, not us alone who are saying that, but there are 30 years of research that show that if you nudge people to think outside the box, that is in effect to try to think without any constraints, you're hurting those people. So they become less innovative for decision makers. And indeed the idea is the magic is the box. So the you know, think better within your box or think in the right box. I mean, change boxes if, if necessary. And hence, you need to have at your disposal several boxes for the same problem. So you have this ability to shift perspective. But don't try to think without a box. First, it's impossible. And if you yeah. try to do that, you're going to hurt yourself. Trust me. I talk to a lot of innovators and look at their method. And we identify the sort of the formula in which constantly say that innovation loves constraints. The, the source of their creativity are the constraints, whether it's the architect Frank Gehry, who makes a cameo appearance, the famous children's book author, Dr. Seuss, who many people don't realize this, but Green Eggs and Ham, it came about because of a bet with him and his publisher, whether he could write a book 
with only 50 one-syllable words because it was meant for children to learn how to read. And he hated this idea. He bristled at it. But because there was $50 on the line, he was going to do it. And sure enough, he did. And likewise, Martha Graham, there was constraints prior to that in terms of the, she's the foundation of modern dance in the early 20th century. At the time, women were physically constrained. They were tight corsets, forced them to do very classical movements like ballet. And she said, no, modern dance. But she actually had a very rigorous form of breathing known as the sort of the Martha Graham method in which there was a new constraint. But interestingly, when it comes to uh, business, whether it's Steve Jobs or entertainment in particular with Saturday Night Live, which might be the most important way in which constraints work, the basis of improv comedy is not that anything goes, not at all. You create a universe and then you have to adhere to that universe. And the point of improv is that everything happens has to, has happened is the way that they phrase it, which is you can't have someone say something, and then you ignore it because you think it goes into the wrong direction. Now, if you take this idea of these tight constraints, these self-imposed walls that innovators place on them when it comes to the, at the highest level of performance, like live television in America, right? Saturday Night Live, iconic. Now just transpose that into an office setting in business. I have personally been in too many meetings in which we're all supposed to go on to some sort of post-it, big post-it note and card and pin it to a wall and think outside the box and blue sky thinking and completely be afresh. Now, of course, it's a complete failure because everyone brings in their stale ideas that they had in the morning, they had yesterday into the meeting that they think this time now everyone's going to see their genius. So it doesn't work. But secondly, when you don't have those constraints, it just, as Francis said, it comes to nothing. But when you actually have the come to Jesus moment of very tight constraints, then you can innovate. Yeah. And, and certainly if you, I've done quite a lot of interviews with entrepreneurs and quite a lot of them say, whilst they enjoy the success, the moments they really enjoy is when a business has failed, they're having to start again because they're under a lot of constraints. They're under a lot of pressure. They don't have the money. They're having to really be creative in order to move forward. So what, what I did as a manager, so I'll, I'll let you, my colleagues, my co-authors right say in a second, but I'll just simply say it to implement it. What I've done as a manager is to take the blue sky idea of what we want to do, for example, launching a new section. And I come up with these crazy new imposed constraints and just make it, I pretend as if it's involable. And suddenly everyone first pulls out their hair and they don't, they don't dislike it and they bristle at it. But the success always speaks for itself. It always improves. Just take the iPod, the famous music player. There were digital music players before that, but what made the iPod so special was that the chief engineer at Apple was in Japan visiting suppliers and he got a little hard disk and the Japanese said, here is this little marble, this hard disk that can hold five gigabytes of data, but we have no understanding and nothing that we can do with it. We don't know what to do with it. And so the guy took this hard disk with him and on the airplane was looking at it. And the hard disk, the dimensions of that hard disk and the capacity constrained what the iPod could, and that created the iPod. Uh, and so the constraint was really, in a way, that greased the machinery of cognition and creativity. Yeah, again, it's, it's kind of, you've got these boundaries. We've got to work in the boundaries. How on earth are we going to do that? That sparks that creativity. Yeah, lovely. And I would also say, certainly from a, a philosophical and a psychological point of view, just in agreement that there's no such thing as theory-free thinking. 
we're always operating from a theory frame, always. Yeah, cool. Great. Can we, I just want to kind of move on just with time. One of the things that I really found fascinating was the idea of misapplied frames and how a frame can be used to suppress the thinking and ideas of people with different frames. And, and you go into some depth in this within the book. Could you just explain this a little bit more? Well, okay, so we can take the the example of Tisenko in Russia. You know, it would be funny if it didn't end up tragically. And if not, you know, in the end, because of his misframing, many people died. Again, the idea of framing is the idea of applying specific mental model to a situation. Misframing is when you choose really the wrong model. And then as we discussed, you get convinced that this is the right option, the right thing to do. And then you dig a hole for yourself, basically. And so what happened in the 30s in, in Russia that, in a sense, Lysenko, I forgot his first name, I think it was Trofim. Lysenko basically applied, with the support of Stalin, obviously, it applied the communist frame to biology. And the idea that you are going to plant the crop together because they are from the class, social class, and then, you know, people from the same social class, they work better when they are close together. Any farmers in Russia knew that this was crazy, you need to space them. But no, because the frame of communists tells you you need to work together. And it ended up being a disaster. I mean, people uh, died of starvation. And this is basically the cost of misapplying a frame to a situation that is of misframe. This is when what happened. So that's why you need to be very, very careful when you pick your frame to the situation. Good to look at the same situation from different frames to see which one fits. I mean, the metaphor would be if you only have a screwdriver, you're going to try to nail your nails with your screwdrivers. So you need to have a hammer and a screwdrivers to see what fits best. And then you know the hammer fits best. It also assigns responsibility in a way. You know, it's not the frame most of the time that it's at fault. It's framing that's at fault, and namely you. So we argue in the book that with one exception, there aren't bad frames. In fact, it depends on the context and the goal, but there is a lot of bad framing. There is a lot of taking a frame and applying it to the wrong situation, which of course is our responsibility rather than the frame. And, and this actually talks into this whole idea of critical thinking. And quite often, one of the problems that I see, certainly when critical thinking or programs are trying to develop critical thinking, is they kind of stop at the evidence bit, which is, here's an argument or a hypothesis, here's the evidence, let's analyze it, without thinking through, which is the next part of critical thinking, the consequences, and projecting what are the consequences likely to be of this particular frame. And I, I think that's a, a kind of a, a critical component that gets missed out in a lot of kind of critical thinking programs that I've seen is they just stop at the analysis of the data, if you see what I mean. Yeah, the second order effects, right? Exactly. I think where I see the largest mental shortcoming is people who just live in a first order effect universe and miss the second step. And that's where the counterfactuals become so important, right? That's where framing is so essential because we, as you pointed out, David, we can see what doesn't exist. We can see what's not there. It enables us to extrapolate from the now to see the, it's a, almost like a, a mental radar with reality and, or uh, I guess, yeah, radar sort of looking ahead where that you, you don't have visibility for, but you still can understand. So that's why it's so essential that if we learn how to frame and we learn how to play with the, the three C's, if you will, the causality on one side, the constraints 
on the other and in between the two, the counterfactuals and we have mental rehearsals, et cetera, we can actually interact with the world in a much more useful way because we've got that critical facility to see not just simply what's ahead of us, the first order effects, but the second order effects that are inherently non-visible yet will come. Lovely. Thank you. One of the central themes of the book is about seeing frames as a conscious choice. Can you just talk a little bit about this and help us understand how people can get in a position where they're able to identify and choose from a range of different frames? Well, okay. So let me start. I get the, the, this is more, uh, okay, I guess, but the first step I've learned that from him. So that's one thing for him. But the first step is to be aware that we are using frames. That he is, as you said yourself, you always have a theory behind your mind. He theory is a mental model. And so when you make a choice, when you embrace a situation to reflect on on what are the causal assumptions I'm making or what are the constraints I'm currently imposing on my thinking? What do I put outside in my model or what do I account for? And then you start to, to do those what if and do this counterfactual to see what are the consequences of mutating these constraints or changing a bit causality here and there. And so just starting there, just having, as Ken loves to say, a language, he convinced me on that. It took me some time because, you know, but he's right. I mean, it's like, for me, it's so obvious, but he's right. This is the first thing is you need to, to learn that language, that vocabulary and experiment with it. And once you've done that before changing frames, your frames in general are good. That's why you stick to them. They have helped you thus far. They, they, they have something. So before dropping them and switching frames, let's see where it takes you. And then of course, the next step is that you need to have these repertoire frames, that is to have a diversity of representation at hand so that if the situation changes, if this is novel to you, you have this agility to shift frames. And so you need to then expand your repertoires of frames. Anybody want to come in on that as well? Okay. Well, you know, as always, I think Francis always hits home runs. So I always feel like there's not much more to add other than to reiterate or underline things that Francis has already said. But I say that about both co-authors. Yeah. Let me add uh, one line, if I may. And that is, we actually, we humans are pretty good at framing and we are pretty good at practicing our frame. We are starting to do that at a very early age. Uh, in fact, when children engage in pretend play, whether it's playing doctor or playing shop, in a what-if universe, they are in a counterfactual universe. And so they are training their counterfactual thinking. When we later in life read a novel, when we watch a, a crime movie, when we play a good video game, we are in a what-if situation training our counterfactuals. That's a good thing. But we don't do it in adult life as often as we do it in childhood. And so Alison Gopnik, one of the experts in the field, says the children are the research and development department of humanity, while we are more marketing and sales. And we can reverse. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I'm pushing this is that certainly adults, people in organizations making decisions, politicians making decisions, is they tend to back themselves into a framing corner, as it were, by rehearsing their own frames, defending their own frames as opposed to actually examining, you know, what are the frames are there that I can actually see this from? And I suppose my concern is how do people in business, how do people in life, adults, actually get back into that? I'm kind of answering my own question here about playfulness, get into that place of playfulness so that they can start 
exploring other frames and starting to see the problem from those frames. And I, I suppose that's the question is, how do they go about getting back into that, I suppose? Well, two things I think are really important. One is to understand that what you call playfulness, what we sometimes call, you know, being a couch potato is actually productive, cognitively productive, and uh, that this isn't just entertainment but that is actually training, honing, practicing our framing skills. And, and that's very important. The other thing is that we don't need to be so utilitarian about it in the sense that we say, okay, so now today I get up and I learn three more frames. Because how would you go about learning three more frames and knowing that you are needing these frames rather than other frames? Far more important, it seems, than learning a particular frame is to develop a curiosity uh, and a, a certain serendipity to be interested in new frames in the first place so that you want to confront yourself with new stuff, that you're not afraid of venturing out of the path that you always take. That kind of a, a love for the new, a love for the novel, for the undiscovered from your own perspective is far more important than going down a to-do list and acquiring a certain number of frames. And to build on that, to keep in mind that that has has been the biggest trend of the last two decades when it comes to how people are educating themselves and most importantly when they leave school sort of taking on new knowledge if you remember you know the, the 20th century was the era of conferences that you would go to to drill down and get better at what you already knew so if you're a radiologist you went to a radiologist convention and you became a better radiologist and added to the depth of your knowledge if you will it was the knowledge was vertical today it doesn't look like that at all it's all very horizontal you go to an event not to become better at what you already do but to learn about other people and what they're doing so the way that they solve their problems, you can incorporate into solving your own problems. TED is the classic example of that in which you go there and you get a smorgasbord of frames from other people who in 15 minutes can crystallize what they know so you can take it in and bring it into yourself. So whether the person is talking about power poses or education and dance, you're a better business person because of it. That to me is glorious. Master classes do that as well. And online learning, it's, it's a glorious example of how people are getting better at being what they do and they're fulfilling their passion by learning from other people in the same domain, but in domains outside of their domain. And I want to also really insist on the social network part. I mean, you, to go back to your executives and managers and to expose yourself to a diversity of frames is also to expose yourself to people who think differently than you. And we have this tendency to surround you by people who think like us. We like people because we are alike and we are alike because we share the same frame, the same representations about how the world works. So in a personal, you know, of course, probably you want to be married or to have a partner who has a share frame on many things. In friendship also, I would argue, but even in organizations, it's very important to force yourself to engage with people who might really be different. It's a bit against our nature. Same when to build on what Ken was saying, when you look at TED Talk and when you look at topics, we have again the tendency to look at the topic that we like. So we start to look everything about AI and then we look all also TED Talks about AI. So the willingness to say, well, let me look about a TED Talk about chemistry, for instance, or something I really don't think I care much about because it forces me to explore 
outside my repertoire of friends. So there is a bit of like effort, like courage, if you want to go beyond what you like and what is easy for you. Yeah. What, what, one of the things we, we used, so I used to work in one of the innovation labs, well, a couple of the innovation labs in the UK. And one of the activities that we used to do with executives is get them to dress up as something like Scooby-Doo or Abe Lincoln or somebody else and say, right, okay, you are this character. How would this character approach this problem? And that automatically started to put them into another frame. And at, at first they kind of used to bulk about dressing up as Scooby-Doo, but once they got into it, it was great fun. And they started to see different perspectives. Kind of but that's exactly right. And in our book, we actually have a guide for working with frames at the very end of the book. And one of the things we suggest is for people who are confronting a problem to ask them, how would I do this if I were my boss? How would I do this if I were my biggest corporate rival, right? Sort of my enemy. Weirdly enough, I've often done that. With, I'm in a, I work at a media organization, but with a lot of hard charging people. And there's a very healthy rivalry among us. And that I think spurs us to do great things. So often I'm finding myself, you know, as I sort of think through as an editor, what I need to do for a section, how would I do this if I was the person who hated me most, right? Who was my enemy internally? Like if this person took my job, what would this person do to show that Ken Kukier is actually useless and, and pathetic? And then I do what that person would have done that I wrap myself in glory because I've sort of appeared <laughs> to other great editors who I completely admire, who are my colleagues. And and who, if they took on this role, this is what they would do. So I'm going to do that myself and I'll have that glory as well. And I think that lots of executives do that without much deliberation. They sort of do it naturally. They're always thinking that way. But this is a way for those of us who aren't quite as amazing as their betters to actually learn from, as sort of take that methodology, that approach, learn from it and become better ourselves by deliberately taking on the frames of other people and putting ourselves in that mental state for producing a different range of alternatives and therefore better outcomes. Excellent. They're really nice examples. Thanks, Kenneth. One of the areas of the books that kind of caught me and I found fascinating and I kind of not really thought about before, and it's probably why it kind of hit me in the face. And given the march of technology and rapid development of things like artificial intelligence and machine learning in so many areas of our life, they're helping us make decisions. The point that you make in the book is that none of these things, AI, machine learning, computers, actually work from a point of view of frame. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and what is the impact of the fact that they don't, and they don't appear to be at the moment capable of doing. Well, artificial intelligence itself is a little bit of a misnomer. What machine learning actually does is that it is really very capable of uncovering patterns, hidden patterns in data and large sets of data. And to expose that and then to use that as, as training data to hone its own algorithm. But it is incapable of doing two things. One, generalize and abstract. It's stuck in the data. It only sees the trees, never the forest. We humans have the ability to generalize and to abstract. Uh, and that's incredibly powerful because we can take something from one context and make it a template and apply it in another context. The concept of a forest is eminently more generalizable than the idea of a tree. And secondly, what the machine can't do is it can't see what isn't there. It sees the past and the present and projects it into the future. But if the future is different from the present, 
then it's incapable of making any good predictions. And so the machine is good in times of little change when you optimize Torvitz efficiency, but the machine is really bad in times of radical change when you need new ideas. And making judgments based. Yes, on, on something that you don't see, but that you have to imagine. And this imagination, this sort of targeted dreaming or the dreaming with constraints, as we call it, is something that the machine can't do. It can't dream. It can only permutate through a, a very large option space. And by the time it's through with that, we're all dead. You're right. Sorry, go on. No, no. I just want to build on what Victor is saying. I mean, in a sense, the machine can only tell you something that is in the data. And the data is, by definition, from the past or really the present. If the past and the present are really predictive of the future, as Victor mentioned, then it's working. What we can do with our frame is that we can extrapolate well beyond the data, really imagine things well beyond the data we have and still be correct. So it's really about how tied to the data you are. And if you want your machines to work well, that's why you need a lot of data because you need to cover as many possibilities, but all the possibilities are known. I mean, they happen. That's why you have the data. What we can do is go well beyond. Given that both of you are kind of at the forefront of certainly thinking in terms of computers, analytics, things like that. I suppose th this kind of a natural question that comes out of this is the projection of where things like machine learning and AI is going. Is there a potential that they're going to be able to work using frames in the future? It's a horrible question, I know. No, no. I mean, you know, I think that machines are already working with frames. The only thing is that we wired up those frames in the way we select the data on which the machine is trained, the algorithm itself. So there's a lot already of human framing that are cooked into the algorithm and the machine and the data, what we believe is that the machine will not be able by itself to come up with their own new representations. That's what we don't believe that the machine can represent, can do the act of by itself represent. And let me add one more important thing here. We should not hope for the singularity, that the singularity, that is the machine taking over, is going to solve all of our questions. A, because then it's going to be questionable whether we still have a seat on the table of evolution. Why should we? Uh, and B, because the problems that we are facing are now. We can't wait a couple of decades for the machine, potentially or not, to become smart enough. In fact, we have that very powerful tool of framing. It would be ridiculous not to use and utilize that tool and rather to delegate it to them. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I, I, I mean, I, there's some noise outside, so I hope she is not bothering you. Yeah. But I want to add one more thing, though, is that what I believe, I strongly believe, but that still AI will have a role in our ability to frame. That is, sometimes AI points out in the data something that our frame had not perceived, for instance. And so by having working with AI, we can start to sometimes reframe, to think differently about the same problem. It's not the machine who tells you, here's a new frame. The machine says, oh, look at that. Hey, you didn't think about that. And then you look at it and then, oh yes, maybe I need to, to rethink, reframe, develop a different mental model. So I think AI is going to play a critical role, not only to prediction of things that are predictable, as Victor mentioned, but also to give us directions about how we may want to reframe our thinking. We already have great examples of that. DeepMind's AlphaZero algorithm, like AlphaGo, AlphaZero is trained without any 
human data where AlphaGo did have great human matches that I learned from. Great Go players, as well as great chess players, because AlphaZero did both chess and Go, learn and became better players because of it. However, what they were, things that they identified, such as, you know, new chess strategies, for example, that don't value the piece and don't value the position, but value the mobility of the pieces, right? The, the theory of mobility versus position. We chess scholars had understood for hundreds of years the value of position but not of mobility. It was looking at the, the wins by AlphaZero that understood it. However, AlphaZero doesn't actually understand the concept of mobility, it just knows how to win, right? It's just a large prediction table, probability table. It was the human ability to extract that representation, that, if you will, that theory or theme, that concept of mobility, give it a name, right? Which was enabled us to become better humans ourselves, having learned it from the AI. I think that sort of symbiosis is going to characterize how we interact in the future. However, it's really important to remember who the master is and who the servant is, right? The AI was a tool to help us. And, and, and if I even want to build on that, if you talk to manager, executive consultants, today, the use of AI in, in companies is really most of the time to look for efficiency. It's like, okay, this is messy processes. We have a lot of data. Let us train an AI. It's going to be much faster. And usually the decisions are really, sorry, the most boring decision. It's, a, you know, is his information correct? Or is his supplier providing an error in its information? So something that you will hire an intern to do that. And so you use that, be more efficient. And it, there's nothing wrong with that. But I really believe that in the future, organizations, which will be be able to leverage AI to have them reframe, as we just mentioned, to say, point us in some directions are going to be in the future, to me, at least the company that will really know, learn how to leverage this new technology the best way. Yeah, that's a frame in itself. Is lots of nodding. Okay. So just to kind of move us on a little bit, because this is a, a kind of an area that I've got involved a bit on the periphery is this idea of cognitive laziness. And I just wonder to what extent do you think that kind of laziness or cognitive laziness is actually contributing to people's unwillingness to explore frames? I don't know. Well, on one hand, cognitive laziness is good, right? We use frames in order to make representations and abstractions and generalizations, and they help us in the moment by compressing information so we can answer questions in the here and now. If not, we'd always have to run the experiment through and run the thinking through. So there's a great quote by Alfred North Whitehead, help me here, that civilization advances by automating more and more of man's thinking. We can find the right one, the actual quote itself, and put into the show notes because it's a lot more eloquent by the foremost scholar of of science and philosophy. But the point is that for lots of things, we don't want to have to do a lot of mental processes. We want to basically just adapt, take a frame and then answer a question here and now. So we want to impose it. Cognitive laziness should be a value that we want to adhere to. Where we don't want to be lazy is when we want to have deliberate thinking to play with it, to say, I have a frame, but I'm going to actually play with the constraints or I'm going to reimagine different counterfactuals and adapt that frame for the circumstance. And only if really need be, only at the in extremis, if the frame doesn't work, do we want to then reframe. But that should be a whole separate moment. And often these reframings is simply taking a new frame from the repertoire, 
But, you know, again, in extremists, we have to reinvent, right? We have to invent an entirely new frame. And those moments are, are earthquake moments, right? CRISPR is an example of reframing genomics to, to be able to not just simply uncode the, you know, the DNA, but simply, but actually to edit the DNA. The classic reframing in life, which sort of helps people understand it, is the heliocentric to geocentric theory of the universe, in which you can actually plot the planetary motions just as well, equally well with both theories, with both maps, right? However, one is better because it's a better fit for reality and therefore it allows you to do more things with it, right? But you needed to, again, it was an absolute conceptual shift from the Earth being the center of the universe to being one of many planets that are in a trajectory around. When we think of cognitive laziness, I think it's also important to realize that the context in which we're in, I mean, in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, it was basically an efficiency-driven economy. I, I remember in the 1980s, uh, the Japanese were supposed to take over because they were relentlessly pushing efficiency. You know, now 25 years later, we're the Japanese, but precisely because in an age of efficiency, cognitive laziness is okay because you have the answers to the questions that they're there. But if you don't have the answers to the questions, if you're faced with new challenges, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's global warming, whether it's social injustice and discrimination, or whether it's the fundamental reconfiguration of our economy, we need new answers. And these new answers require, unfortunately, cognitive work rather than cognitive laziness, which is unfortunately not what we have been used to and what we have practiced over the last couple of decades. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's not so much about cognitive laziness. In fact, people put a lot of effort to keep their frame, not change frames, to defend their frames, to reject data. It's a lot of cognitive work. It's like, you know, in front of all the evidence sometimes. So it's, you know, it's often more misallocation of effort. You know, I'm teaching right now decision making to my MBA students who are very smart, bright, young women and men. And I just taught two days ago this case where the question was whether or not to launch a project. And they were the yes camp and the no camp. Trust me, both sides did excellent framing. They were working on two different frames roughly, and they put a lot of effort to how their frame works, works, works. And at the end, I asked them who changed their mind and nobody changed their mind. Nobody, in fact, really tried to embrace the frame of the other one, but they put a lot of effort. So it's more about the agility of the mind again. It's you can have strong muscles and put effort and strong, strong muscles, but if you're not flexible, you're not going to go far. So to me, laziness is not the main point. It's really where do you allocate your effort? What type of cognitive skills you put in your effort? You, you've just given me an idea for a paper, actually, or a paradox of cognitive laziness. Thank you. Okay, brilliant. And just to kind of move us on looking at the time, you, you know, there's so much in this book, it's, it's kind of impossible to cover it all in such a short period of time. And I, I really do recommend that people get it and read it because every section is thought provoking. So to finish off, what three practical things do you think people could start to do right now to help them to become a better framer? I can give you one and I'll, I'll let the others come up with others. But the one I think is mental rehearsals. It's the one that I use the most that I learned from 
you know, writing the book with my co-authors, which is the idea of playing the situation before it happens in your mind in a very structured and deliberate way. It's something that uh, very elite soldiers do before military operation. It is something that high-performance athletes do all the time. There's very special coaches that are dedicated to it. An example is that an Olympic ski jumper will get two practice runs on that particular slope before they actually compete. But when you've asked them about how their practice has gone, they say, yeah, they've done it 60,000 times because they put themselves into the position where the wind will be slightly different, where they'll hit a burr on their blade as they're going off the ramp, all of these different things. And then they think about how they're going to respond to it. So they feel very prepared when they're in the moment. I find that mental rehearsals might be that one thing that I put. Excellent. Thanks, Kenneth. So what I do, which is not easy, but it has helped me a lot is when, and the advice would be next time you have a big disagreement with someone at work or, or among your friends or even your spouse, I don't know, but you have a very, very big disagreement. You know, usually the tendency we have is to attribute this disagreement to the bad personality, the bad intent of the other side. And we think in terms of especially them, but instead of doing that just for a sec, just for a time try to embrace and uncover the mental model that other people are using. Try to identify what are causal claims they are making, which different constraints they are using, and try to see the world through their eyes. And maybe you'll see something new. I mean, what I'm saying is that it's not that you have to change your mind. It's not that you have to change your opinions, but at least for a couple of minutes, try to embrace that perspective and see through their lenses. It's as if you take the sunglasses, put them on your nose and see, okay, how do I see the world now? And then you, you can give it back. But I think these, you know, help learn different frames and also sometimes help negotiates and help find solutions. In fact, there was a, sorry, Victor, I'm just going to cut it. There was a really interesting study that was published about 18 months ago that was looking at how people can understand the perspective of other people. So people, for example, who from a certain culture or something, and what they found was by asking them to go back and imagine that they'd been born into that culture rather than try to take on that culture's perspective cold, as it were, just what would it have been like growing up in that culture has that effect for people? Yeah. I mean, so what I want to say that there's also, and we talk about that in the book, that there's a theory that say that our ability to frame the human species came up over the edge of evolution with his ability to think in terms of frames and mental model is because we started to coordinate among ourselves and to be able to coordinate, you need to start to imagine how does the other person see the world or see the situation from his or her perspective. And so this is very related to what you're saying that as soon as all species started to do that in a way that we know champs, monkeys can't do, that is we, chimpanzees cannot take the perspective of another animal. So we can. And so this is very, very, very fundamental to what defines us as. I was going to add that in Robert McNamara's memoirs, Requiem, he was the head of the French department during the Vietnam War. He says that his biggest regret and the reason for America's failure in, in Vietnam was primarily the lack of ability to put themselves in the mind of the Vietnam. Yeah. And in fact, there's a, a video in the fog of war where he goes through a series of lessons. Very powerful. Very, very powerful. Yeah. Excellent piece of work. Victor. You know, so far you've heard practical advice and also maybe the subtle message that it takes a lot of effort, which is true. It's not costless, but I want to highlight at the end that a lot of those that have framed really well get great satisfaction out of it. It's a deep 
cognitive enjoyment that they're experiencing. It's not something that is just a slog. It really is a joy at the end, a joy because we see the world differently, but also because as we see the world differently, we can shape it. We can leave the world with a little bit of a dent of our own. And in a better place. And I also think that some of that joy, and it, it comes out in the book, is that idea of playfulness, having a play with different perspectives, different frames. Brilliant. Thank you very, very much for your time and just for being here with us. I really appreciate it. If people want to contact you, how is the best way for them to do that? Email. 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 Yeah. Okay. We'll put those in the show notes yeah. then. Thank you so much. Framers, Human Advantage in an Age of Technology and Turmoil has been published by Penguin Random House and is available now. I highly recommend it. It's an excellent read and really thought-provoking and an important book. Thank you very much, Jeff. This episode of the Organizational Success Academy podcast has come to a close. Subscribe for more research briefings, ideas, and thinking to help you and your organization find success in any situation. Remember to rate and review this podcast so that we can continue to bring you the best and very latest research thinking and ideas available. We will see you in the next episode of the Organizational Success Academy by the Oxford Review.